Hello, and welcome to Assassinations Podcast. In this episode of our season on Deadly Dynasties, we look at the battles between and within Mafia crime families in America in the 1920s and 30s. Through bloodshed, backstabbing, and double-dealing, Salvatore Luciana, aka Lucky Luciano, rose to the top of the mob. With ruthlessness, intrigue, and intelligence, he took over the Maseria crime family, liquidating his rivals all across the country, and then revolutionising organised crime across North America. With assassinations aplenty, this is sure to be one of the most thrilling episodes of our show. Buckle up. For our Patreon supporters, we recently released two bonuses. A video tour of Washington DC, where I visit and talk about a few assassination-related places in the US capital city. Also available is a very interesting conversation that I had via Skype with Mike Karadi from a History of Italy podcast, in which we talk about our joint episodes on the Borgias, as well as having a chat about what got us into podcasting in the first place. Stay tuned during the mid-roll to hear an excerpt from our sister show, Fab Figmentals. Fab Figmentals mixes storytelling with the history of the creatures that inhabit fables and myths from around the world. All this month, the show will have a Halloween theme, which I know is going to be both fascinating and fun. So now, let us don our fedora hats, travel back to the age of jazz, and make sure we're packing heat as we watch the bodies fall during the rise of Lucky Luciano. Welcome to Assassinations Podcast, where we delve into some of history's most notorious political killings, and explore the mysteries and conspiracies that surround them. Time and again, assassins have wielded the blade, the poison vial, the bullet, and the bomb to shape the course of history. I'm your host, Neil Cooper, and in this podcast, I'm going to investigate the lives and deaths of some of history's most colourful characters. On April 15th, 1931, a group of men in sharp suits arrived at an excellent restaurant in New York City. This was scheduled to be a working luncheon. The businesses that these entrepreneurs operated were highly profitable, and it was necessary to regularly discuss the finer points of strategy and personnel. Serious money was at stake. They managed millions of dollars of imports and exports. They ran major ports and other vital transportation infrastructure and they operated a nationwide distribution network that provided an essential product to millions of hard-working American consumers. 
These men had carefully cultivated political connections amongst some of the most influential people in local and national politics. They were benefactors of religious and charitable institutions. And they were guided by a corporate culture that valued tradition and honour as highly as profit. In short, they were, in many respects, representatives of the spirit of free enterprise that made the United States of America the powerhouse of capitalism. And they were also cutthroat gangsters whose entire operations were illegal from top to bottom. This was supposed to be a tete-a-tete between the two most powerful people in the Masseria crime family, one of the five families that dominated organised crime in New York City. Their lunch took place in a well-known mafia haunt in Coney Island, Brooklyn, one of the many fronts for their criminal operations. The meeting had been called by Salvatore Luciano, the number two man in the operation. Luciano had invited his boss, Joe Masseria, to the restaurant ostensibly to talk shop and also to ease the tensions between the two men, who naturally saw each other as rivals. Masseria arrived at the restaurant with two other leading men in the family. An awkward lunch ensued. After their meal, they decided to play cards. During the game, Luciano went to the bathroom at which point four gunmen burst into the restaurant and shot Masseria and his two henchmen to death. Luciano emerged to survey the carnage. It was done. In one fell swoop he had killed one of the most powerful men in the American Mafia. And in so doing, he had not only protected himself, he had enormously increased the value of his own stock. Luciano had made a secret deal with a rival mobster named Salvatore Maranzano, the head of the Castellamari crime family. Maranzano and Masseria had been battling with each other for years for the title of Capo de Capi, boss of bosses, the top man amongst the leaders of the five families and, moreover, the entire Italian-American mafia across North America. In exchange for turning against his boss, Lucky would take over all of Masseria's operations and become Maranzano's chief lieutenant. This murderous meal at the Coney Island restaurant would turn out to be a pivotal moment, not only in the life of Lucky Luciano, not only in the dirty warfare of mafia rivalries, but in the history of the United States for Lucky would emerge as the dominant force in the mob in the mid-20th century, at a time when mafia activities moved, at least in part, from the shadows of the criminal underworld into the light of legitimate business and even government contracting. Luciano most certainly earned his nickname of Lucky. In 1931, at the age of 33, He'd lived a life of crime since his childhood on the streets of Brooklyn, the son of poor Sicilian immigrants. He'd survived beatings, stabbings, and being shot at. He'd been arrested, but he'd never been to prison. Through a combination of luck, ruthlessness, 
cruelty, and sheer determination, this child of the mean streets was now a multi-millionaire who could count politicians, judges, and Wall Street moguls amongst his friends. Prohibition had been very, very good for Lucky Luciano. He ran an international booze-running operation, supplying everything from cheap Caribbean rum to the best single malt Scotch whiskies through his own supply chain. When his reputation took a hit back in the 1920s, after he was busted for selling heroin, Luciano quickly got back on his feet. He bought 200 expensive front row seats to one of the biggest prize fight boxing matches at Madison Square Garden, New York City. He then handed out the tickets to top police officers and city officials. Luciano turned up wearing a handmade Italian silk suit with a fur coat and a Rolex watch. He glad-handed the city's elite. The heroin charges went nowhere, and Lucky just kept on doing business. That was his style. He loved the high life, but it wasn't just luxury for its own sake. Lucky didn't just want to be a mobster, he wanted to be a businessman. He knew the difference between the two was largely one of image. He hated the old style of the Sicilian Mafia, the style favoured by his boss, Joe Masseria. He thought they were uncouth. They didn't know how to dress and how to talk in good company. They didn't have proper table manners or know the intricacies of social etiquette. Lucky was determined to be different. As a young man, he'd worked for a Jewish mobster called Arnold the Brain Rothstein. Rothstein was a cut above the average gangster, and from him Luciano had learned how to hobnob with respectable society. Also, unlike the old-school Sicilians, Lucky didn't care who he worked with. Men like Joe Masseria distrusted anyone outside of families whose roots were in Sicily. Even mafiosi from Calabria in mainland Italy were considered virtual foreigners. But to Luciano, money was money. He had no problem working with Jewish or Irish gangsters, just so long as profits could be made. Prohibition had infused the mafia with huge amounts of cash, giving crime families a massive capital injection that they could invest in new enterprises, such as the Las Vegas casinos into which the mob poured money from the 1930s onwards. This required them to operate as businessmen, not merely thugs. The old Sicilian culture with its incestuous family networks, codes, and so-called honour did not disappear, but the onus was now on business operations that would eventually connect the mob to the very heart of American government and industry. First, though, Lucky had to restructure the mafia, making it look less like a group of gangs and more like a modern business enterprise. Step one was to get rid of Salvatore Maranzano. A battle for power between the two men was always on the cards. A man of Lucky Luciano's talent and ambition could not play second fiddle to an old-school mobster such as Maranzano. In turn, 
Maranzano knew that it wouldn't be long before Luciano did to him what he had done to his previous boss. So, in September 1931, Maranzano hired an Irish assassin to kill Luciano, who got wind of this and managed to escape with his life. He in turn hired four Jewish gangsters, men that Maranzano would not recognise, to carry out a hit. Disguised as police officers, they disarmed Maranzano's bodyguards before stabbing the crime boss multiple times and then shooting him. Luciano then mopped up several of Maranzano's loyal captains before going after the head of a Pittsburgh crime family who was shot to death in his home. Then the boss of a Los Angeles family was taken out, followed by several other old-school Sicilian bosses. It was a purge, with Luciano emerging as the number one crime boss in North America. His own crime family dominated New York, including drugs, gambling, protection and sex trafficking. He also controlled several labour unions, especially on the Manhattan waterfront, which allowed Lucky to control the importation of drugs and other contraband. Unlike Maranzano and Masseria, Luciano didn't care about being the capo de capi. He abolished the title, instead establishing a commission that forged alliances with other mob bosses, allowing the Mafia to operate as a syndicate across the United States and Canada. No longer at war with itself, they could now focus simply on making cold hard cash. The commission not only included Italian mafiosi, but also incorporated Jewish and Irish crime lords preventing wasteful conflicts between these groups based on outmoded ethnic disputes, which might have been relevant on the mean streets of Brooklyn in the 1920s, but which were anachronistic in the big business world in which the mob now operated. Luciano's commission was modelled more along the lines of a corporation than a gang, and in a backhanded recognition of this, the American press nicknamed the new organisation the National Crime Syndicate. Luciano did remain committed to one key aspect of the Sicilian Code, though. Omerta, the oath of silence, the unbreakable rule to never rat out your fellow mafiosi, which was vital to protect the families from legal prosecution. As well as being the head honcho of the commission, Luciano continued to operate his own eponymous crime family based in New York City. Though non-Italians could not technically be part of the family, Luciano nonetheless had two Jewish mobsters, Meyer Lansky and Bugsy Siegel, as his top lieutenants. Lansky was the money man, known as the mob's accountant. He so carefully managed the ill-gotten gains of the Mafia that in the course of 50 years in the business he never received more than a slap on the wrist from the authorities, even though he managed a multi-million dollar money laundering empire. Bugsy was primarily an assassin, who had allegedly been one of the four hitmen Luciano had sent to kill Joe Masseria in the Coney Island restaurant. More than just a tough guy, Bugsy was a suave operator who could mix with Hollywood celebrities just as easily as he could hang with Mafia foot soldiers. 
he would go on to become a driving force behind the development of Las Vegas as the gambling capital of America. In the early 1930s, Luciano was on top of the world, well, the underworld. Where many had fallen, not least by his hand, Lucky had emerged as the de facto boss of bosses, whose dealings stretched from sea to shining sea, and from the alleyways of Brooklyn to the backlots of Hollywood. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. This week I'll be joining forces with Lindsay Morse to participate in a very special episode of our sister show, Fab Figmentals. A history and storytelling podcast, Fab Figmentals looks at the world of curious creatures, magical monsters, and beautiful beasts. All this month, in the lead-up to Halloween, Lindsay will be sharing stories and looking into the background of some of the most iconic characters of the season. I'm delighted that she invited me to read this week's story. Here's a little preview. Hello, I'm Lindsay Morse, the host of Fab Figmentals, a podcast that blends history and storytelling to explore the realm of curious creatures, magical monsters, and beautiful beasts. We're kicking off our Halloween-themed October episodes by looking at Frankenstein, or more accurately, Dr. Frankenstein's monster. This week, I've invited Neil Cooper, the host of our sister show, Assassinations Podcast, to read for us. Our story today is an excerpt from Chapter 5 of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, or The Modern Prometheus. Take it away, Neil. It was on a dreary night of November that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils. With an anxiety that almost amounted to agony, I collected the instruments of life around me, that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was already one in the morning, the rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out when, by the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. How can I describe my emotions at this catastrophe, or how delineate the wretch whom such infinite pains and care I had endeavoured to form? His limbs were in proportion, and I had selected his features as beautiful. Beautiful! Great God! His yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and arteries beneath. His hair was of a lustrous black and flowing, his teeth of a pearly whiteness, but these luxuriances only formed a more horrid contrast with his watery eyes that seemed almost of the same colour as the dun white sockets in which they were set, his shrivelled complexion, and straight black lips. Thanks so much for listening. New episodes are released every Wednesday, and you'll find the show wherever you get your podcasts. Now, Neil, back to you.
Thanks, Lindsay. It was so much fun to read this excerpt from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I hope you'll all tune in to Fab Figmentals this week to hear the whole thing. Now, back to the show. As we heard, Bugsy Siegel was one of the protégés of Lucky Luciano. He would go on to become one of the most important men in the operations of the National Crime Syndicate. Born in 1906 in Brooklyn, Benjamin Siegel was the second of five children of a poor Jewish family originally from Eastern Europe. With his hard-working parents barely able to make ends meet, young Benjamin started his life of crime at an early age, at first participating in nickel-and-dime neighbourhood protection rackets, before graduating to more serious criminal activities such as gambling, car theft, illegal narcotics, and ultimately, murder for hire. An early associate of such notorious gangsters as Al Capone and Meyer Lansky, he fell in with Luciano in the 1920s. The Prohibition years were a gold mine for the mob, and Luciano needed tough, smart men like Siegel to act as enforcers for his business empire. The fact that Siegel was Jewish meant nothing to Luciano, who, as we have seen, had always associated with criminals of different ethnicities. After the assassination of Joe Masseria in 1931, Siegel was put to work bumping off other targets. A highly efficient hitman, he not only took out the opponents of Lucky Luciano, he also ran a nationwide assassination squad that was allegedly responsible for scores of killings across the US in the 1930s. In one particularly infamous episode, Siegel killed a criminal named Tony Fabrizio in 1932. Fabrizio was preparing to publish a memoir in which he was going to expose the activities of several leading mobsters, including Siegel and also Meyer Lansky. So Siegel admitted himself to hospital with some fake condition. He then snuck out in the middle of the night, met with two associates, and went to Fabrizio's house. The other two men knocked on the door and, posing as police detectives, lured the victim outside, where Siegel gunned him down. He then left the scene of the crime and returned to the hospital, sneaking back into his room. A few days later, when the police came to ask where he had been on the night of the murder, Siegel had a perfect alibi, backed up by hospital records. His considerable abilities were put to more nuanced use when Lucky Luciano decided to send him out west to become the National Crime Syndicate's sort of chief operating officer in California and Nevada. In particular, the mob wanted to get into the legal gambling business, especially in Las Vegas. It represented a huge opportunity at a time when the Mafia needed to diversify its business model and invest its significant capital reserves. Prohibition ended in 1933. It had been a stupid and disastrous policy that had merely succeeded in making a mockery of the law, squandering government resources on fighting a crime, drinking, that most people quite enjoyed committing on a daily basis, and the only real winners from 13 years of prohibition had been the crooks, the mafia, 
the bootleggers, the illegal distillers, the international smugglers. And, it might be said, another beneficiary was a certain J. Edgar Hoover, whose Bureau of Investigation was founded in 1924, largely with the task of tackling the boom in organised criminal activity that had been fed by prohibition. The Bureau of Investigation went on to become the Federal Bureau of Investigation in 1935, which Hoover would lead for another 37 years until his death in 1972. Anyway, the Mafia had made so much money during Prohibition, they needed somewhere to put it. And they needed a new cash cow now that people could buy a bottle of scotch from a regular liquor store rather than from them. Casinos were the ideal legal business for the mob. Mafiosi had of course run illegal gambling operations for many years, so they already knew the score. In addition, casinos were a great way to launder huge amounts of dirty money. Finally, a casino is as close to a shakedown racket as you can get in the legal economy. Siegel travelled to Las Vegas, Nevada, where he handled and financed some of the original casinos. He also managed mafia operations in Los Angeles, especially in the movie business. The mob took over trade unions in LA and used strike action to extort money from the studios. However, Siegel eventually developed a close relationship with studio moguls such as Louis B. Mayer and Jack Warner, who doubtless recognised the usefulness of having the National Crime Syndicate on their side. Siegel also extorted money from numerous celebrities, either by asking for loans which were never repaid, or by blackmailing homosexual actors or those having extramarital affairs. Bugsy, as he was known, went on to become something of a celebrity himself, with his good looks and charisma winning him admirers in the above-board world, just as his ruthlessness had earned him a fearsome reputation in the criminal underworld. He became a fixture on the celebrity scene, mixing with many of the leading stars of the day, including such respectable establishment figures as Gary Cooper and Clark Gable. Bugsy's downfall eventually came with the ill-fated Flamingo Hotel in Las Vegas. Supposed to be the most luxurious casino in the world, the Flamingo turned into a money pit, while Siegel's extravagant personal spending drew the ire of his superiors in the National Crime Syndicate. And so, he was murdered. Back east, Lucky Luciano was living up to his epithet. He had emerged from the main streets, survived all manner of threats from fellow criminals and from the law, and now, despite the odds, this son of a Sicilian sulphur miner stood at the pinnacle of organised crime and, in effect, one of the most powerful men in the United States. But in 1936, his luck ran out. He was arrested and charged on 60 counts of compulsory prostitution, what we might today call human trafficking or sex slavery. It was doubtful that Luciano was directly involved in the crimes for which he was convicted. He was far too careful, always making sure there were layers upon layers of middlemen separating him from the activities of his empire. 
The evidence against him was certainly quite thin, but it was clear that the state of New York, or rather some people within it, wanted to throw the book at Luciano. Despite the weakness of the prosecution's case, he was found guilty and sentenced to 30 years in a New York state prison. Luciano continued to control his crime family from prison, using proxies to act on his behalf on the outside. Moreover, prison life for the main man of the mob was not exactly what you'd call hard time. Luciano had a cushy cell with all mod cons and a private kitchen with his own inmate chef. A man of the Catholic faith, Luciano used his wealth and influence to build a beautiful chapel on the prison grounds. The altar was made from the original doors from the Victoria, the ship that Ferdinand Magellan had used to sail around the world. Does that qualify Lucky as a model prisoner? Things turned around for Luciano when the United States joined the Second World War. The government was deeply concerned about German and Italian agents, either entering the US through the port of New York, or committing acts of sabotage in order to disrupt shipping. As the Luciano crime family controlled the port, the Office of Naval Intelligence approached him to request that his men act as, in effect, a paramilitary police force on behalf of Uncle Sam. Luciano, patriot that he was, agreed. But there were conditions. Firstly, he demanded that he move prison, from his facility in upstate New York to a prison in the city, from which it would be easier to control his operations. Soon afterwards, he started to negotiate for a full commutation of his sentence, in exchange for a guarantee that the dock workers' union, which the mob controlled, wouldn't go on strike for the duration of the war. This relationship with naval intelligence continued when, in 1943, Luciano lent a hand during the US invasion of Italy. The American Mafia, naturally, had extensive contacts with the Sicilian Mafia. Luciano used this network to provide the Allied invasion force with intelligence about German positions on the island. It wasn't until 1946 that the commutation process was completed and Luciano walked out of prison, 20 years early, as a free man. The condition for his release was that he be deported to Italy. However, Luciano only spent a few months in his homeland before hopping on a ship and setting sail for Cuba. The Caribbean island was a hotbed of mafia activity. In addition to controlling his operations in Cuba, Luciano was now closer to the United States and therefore better able to maintain regular contact with his lieutenants. Meyer Lansky arranged a conference of top mafia figures at a luxury hotel in Havana, ostensibly to attend a performance by Frank Sinatra, though this was really an opportunity for the commission to discuss some very important business. Three main topics were under discussion. Number one, the burgeoning heroin trade. Number two, the development of casinos in Cuba. And number three, what to do about Bugsy Siegel and the problematic Flamingo Hotel project in Las Vegas. It was probably at this meeting that Siegel's fate was sealed.
During the conference, Luciano was approached by one of the other Mafia leaders, Vito Genovese. He was a long-time associate and close friend of Luciano, and he served as one of his top lieutenants in the United States. Genovese tried to convince Luciano to resurrect the title of Capo de Capi, Boss of Bosses. Suggesting that maybe Luciano couldn't run the business so well from outside the United States, Genovese said that Luciano should assume this title as a mark of respect, but let him run the show in America. Luciano reportedly very calmly rejected Genovese's kind suggestion. There is no boss of bosses, he replied. If I ever change my mind, I will take the title, but it won't be up to you. Right now, you work for me, and I ain't in the mood to retire. You don't ever let me hear this again, or I'll lose my temper. Unfortunately, and rather predictably, photos of Luciano and Frank Sinatra partying the night away in Havana nightclubs hit the national headlines, and US authorities pressured the Cuban administration to kick Luciano off the island. In 1947, he returned to Italy. He would never go back to the United States. Though he was able to retain control of the mob for a while, Ultimately, Vito Genovese did assume control of the Luciano crime family. He proved to be a less successful leader, with his attempts to consolidate power never quite reaching the height of control over the entire American mafia that had long been exerted by Luciano. Nonetheless, organised crime continued to be an extremely powerful force in the United States. and. As I think we will discover in future episodes of this podcast, the mob would continue its relationship with US intelligence in the Cold War era. Thank you for listening to this episode of Assassinations Podcast. Next week, we're going to take another little study break. Well, actually, full disclosure, I'm going on vacation to Canada. We'll return in two weeks' time with the conclusion of our season on dynasties, in which I'll delve into the shadowy world of North Korean politics, with a two-part look at the assassination of Kim Jong-nam, the half-brother of Supreme Leader Kim Jong-un. Poisoned while travelling through Kuala Lumpur Airport in 2017, the very strange circumstances of this crime make it one of the most bizarre assassinations in recent history. This episode was researched and written by me, Neil Cooper. Lindsay Morse produces and edits the show. Our theme music was created by Graham Ronald. I hope you will tune in to our sister show, Fab Figmentals. It really was so enjoyable to read that passage from Frankenstein for one of Lindsay's Halloween episodes. Head on over to fabfigmentals.com to find out more, or check out the show via your podcatcher of choice. As I mentioned at the start of this episode, we have some great bonus content available for our Patreon supporters, including a video I recently made and an interview with Mike Corradi from A History of Italy podcast. We also have a trove of other bonus material. You can go to 
patreon.com slash assassinationspodcast to find out how to gain access to this content and support the work we do here. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I look forward to seeing you in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye.